verses 17 and 18 this evening. It'll be two verses we'll really be looking at. Um, and kind of looking towards the end of the, we're nearing the end of this uh, book of prophecy, of course, and there are some things I would like to look at in the other verses following also, but we're not going to get into them um, fully this evening. But we'll read verses 17 and 18 together. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. Now, if you remember in verses, we looked at verses 16 and 17 on last week, and we're continuing picking up in 17 again because of the connection that's obviously present in verses 17 and 18. But let's go back to verse 16 and 17 together. Uh, The Lord said, For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow it down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, for there, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. There are, are three statements within uh, verse 16, um, and as well in verse 17, of course, which are important for us to consider, as we saw even on last, um, last week. First of all, the scripture says here that Edom had drunk the wine of uh, victory over God's people. That's the inference being made in verse 16 when he says, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. And this reference to Edom having drunk upon the holy mountain is regarding Edom celebrating the Babylonian captivity uh, or victory over Israel as we've read in verses 12 through 14. So go back to verses 12 and through 14. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. I told you that this book is divided into two major divisions, verses 1 through 14, which is God's uh, pronounced absolute utter judgment upon Edom, Esau's, Esau's offspring. And God is declaring he will absolutely obliterate them, and he's going to totally destroy them. We find so many passages in the prophets reference this, that specifically speak against Edom and how God was going to destroy them and his hatred towards them. Malachi, uh, as well as in Jeremiah and and other passages we have seen in the prophets where this was declared and and distinctly the statements are made that God was not going to allow them to rebuild. He was going to destroy them and there would be none left. And so verses or chapters one through or verses one through 14 of Obadiah. And again, some things about Obadiah to recall or remember is that it's, it is the shortest a book in the Old Testament. It is the shortest of the minor prophets, of course, being the shortest book of the Old Testament. And it is unique and yet similar to other prophecies as well, but unique in this, that rather than judgment being pronounced upon many nations, uh, the majority of the prophecy is against Edom specifically. And Edom, of course, is they are Esau's offspring. And the interesting thing that we recall is that, of course, Jacob and, and Esau were brothers And so uh, there is a kinship that is present here. And though Edom were not the people of God, they were were the 
offspring of the brother of, of uh, Jacob, which was Israel, of course. God's chosen people came from him. He was the chosen uh, one, of course, um, that God had, had determined to be uh, Israel. And so as we consider that, we know that God's judgment on Edom is, is uh, very much so severe and absolute judgment. And there is a, a brotherhood that was present among them, physically speaking, not spiritually, but physically speaking. And yet Edom joined with the heathen and joined with those who were against God's people because Edom was against God's people too in reality. We see that to be told even in this prophecy and how that they rose up against Israel and how that they, even though Israel was suffering under the hand of God's judgment of correction, the fact of the matter remains that in that process that Edom participated in assisting those who were attacking or those who were uh, uh, bringing into captivity now the children of Israel. Now, God was using this judgment in correction of his people. Remember something. Um, anytime Israel was taken out, taken out of the land it, uh, under captivity, it was always due to their sin and always God's means of judgment of correcting them and bringing out a remnant again to himself. Even though many would be destroyed, he would bring out a remnant. The, the one time you find Israel in a foreign land that was not the judgment of God was before they had even possessed the land. And that is whenever God had, of course, prophesied to Abraham that he was going to, uh, his, that his offspring would be in captivity for 400-something years, which, of course, is referencing Egypt's, uh, when they were in Egypt and under the taskmasters of Egypt. And that was not the judgment of God upon them, as though they had, in the same sense as what you see, like in captivity. That was prophesied it would be. Then they go in and enter into the promised land after, ex- after the exodus. And from that point forward, any time they were no longer uh, abiding within their land, it was because God was judging them. And God was correcting them, and he was bringing out a remnant of, uh, from among them who would repent, who would turn to him, who would follow him. And so Edom, Esau's offspring, were assisting the heathen and the enemies of the people of God and children of Israel. And they did so in so many ways, as we just read in verses 12 through 14. Uh, continually, repetitively, we see the Lord saying, Thou shouldest not have done this. Thou shouldest not have done this. And there are acts against the people of God, then there were somewhat acts of, of passivity in a sense where they could have helped and they didn't, or in, in turn, they actually turned them over to the captors rather than, or blocked their way rather than allowing them to escape. And so they were acting against God's people. And so Edom had drunk, verse 16 again, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, Edom had drunk the wine of victory over God's people. They had rejoiced. That's what the scripture says in verses 12 through 14. They had rejoiced in, in the calamity of God's people, in the distress of Judah, in the distress of Israel. They were, they were rejoicing in this and celebrating this rather than, than grieving over this. And so Edom too, we we're told that Edom and all the wicked would drink in the wine of God's wrath. Verse 16 goes on to say, so as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, again, speaking of that rejoicing in the Babylonian captivity, he says, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Now remember, verses 15 and then through verse 20 specifically and verse 21 ultimately, but verses 15 through 21 and 20 specifically is now uh, speaking of God's judgment by large upon all the heathen and God restoring his people and the day of the Lord, the final judgment, not only over Edom, but over all the heathen. 
but Edom is still included among them. So verses 1 through 14 are specifically against Edom themselves, that people. Then verses 14 begins to broaden, or after verse 14, 15 and following, the scope of God's judgment is now broadening upon all the heathen, not just Edom itself, but it includes Edom among the heathen. And that is clearly portrayed here in the passage. So, Edom and all the wicked would drink in the wine of God's wrath, verse 16, so shall all the heathen drink continually, yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Now, when it says, as though they had not been, that includes all the heathen, but specifically Edom, because we know God's already spoken that judgment against them very clearly. So we once again see the final and absolute judgment of God upon the wicked, including Edom. And the Lord would not only devastate, but he would destroy the nations and people to the degree that there was no remembrance of them as though they had never existed. I told you last week, which is very interesting, that today, uh, in, in an unregenerate world, one of the things that people really strive for in life, I think especially as they get older, is that they look to leave a legacy. Legacy is a big word, and, and meaning um, among men today in terms of what they want to leave behind. And the reality is it's something for which they can be remembered. It's something about them, something which they think is beneficial, even potentially for others, but it's about them. And what we find is that while even the heathen desire to leave a legacy, because they really can't leave anything else, not to speak of, we find that God acts absolutely against that, even concerning Edom, and says, I will wipe out their remembrance. It will be as though they never even existed. And so God's judgment upon them is where he even wipes out this effort to leave a legacy, if you will. And I told you, what we must remember is that it's not important that people know about us. It's not important that people know our occupation. It's not important that people know I'm a pastor. I gave you this example. It's not important that people know I'm a pastor. That's irrelevant. It's important that people know the Jesus I know. (laughs) And that's what's imperative. It's not important that they know me or know about me. It's important that they know the same God that I, had, that I know, that I now have a relationship with, that's what's important. And so the idea of legacy, it's not important that they remember us or they know our name or that we leave, back, leave behind something in the sense to which we are remembered by. What is important is that our lives are such that Christ is made known through our lives, not that we live life so that we may be remembered. And, and we need to recognize that. And I remember, I'll use this as an example, uh, my mom she has said many, many times, um, and as we were growing up, and she would say to me, she would say, the greatest, the greatest thing that I could ever leave for you when I am gone is that you know that I am with the Lord and that you can one day again see me as well. That's the greatest gift. That's the greatest thing to leave on. How true that is. And that's brought me great comfort through the years, even with my mother, and thinking, you know, she's nearing the, the later years of life now, obviously. And the fact of the matter is, there's nothing greater that could be left than that, to know that she knows the Lord and walks with him, and that one day I will see her again because of that. You know, at the time of her passing, if she does pass before me, if she goes into eternity before I do, then the fact of the matter is there is this great gift and this wonderful promise and this inheritance that is left behind in the sense of not temporal goods and worldly treasures, but of this absolute, absolute confidence that she is with the Lord and that I one day will be as well. And so that, that's a wonderful thing to think of. And so the legacy we leave behind in terms of a temporal, physical sense is not what's important. And I believe the Lord is really emphasizing that concerning Edom, saying, I'll wipe you out. There will be nothing left of you. There will be no remembrance of you. 
Then 17, as we've read already, we'll read again. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now, while it was Mount Zion, God's chosen place of dwelling, that had been ransacked. Remember, that's what we're talking about. God's judgment upon his people, uh, Jerusalem being invaded, captivity being taken away, or the people being taken away into, act, act, into captivity. And here we find it's, it's very uh, Jerusalem itself, the very dwelling place of God's people, and where God dwelt among them, that has now been ransacked in, in God's judgment of his people. But God would deliver his remnant from utter destruction and restore a holy sanctuary. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and we won't read those we did last week, speak to this. Now let's look again at verses 17 and 18 together now. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. Now notice the word but at the beginning. Of course, this is a contrastive conjunction, and it's saying in contrast to the utter destruction of Edom and all the heathen, he says, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Now, remember, this is talking about their captivity. They are going into exile, of course. And he's saying, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble and they shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken. And again, we see God's judgment speaking against all heathen, but now again pointing out Esau specifically. Within verse 17 and 18, the prophecy is declared that the house of Jacob would possess their possessions. That is to say, God would give his people the possessions of the heathen. And we see that to be true again, verse 17, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now, the possessions of which Obadiah mentioned in verse 17 are further detailed in verses 19 and 20. So let's read on a little further now. And they, number one, they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. Number two, they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And number three, Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Number four, the captivity of the host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites even unto Zarephath. And number five, the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shepherod, shall possess the cities of the south. So when it says they shall possess their possessions, it's not just saying what they will possess again what was taken from them. They're saying no. While the, while the heathen and even Edom is involved in the ransacking of God's holy place that he has chosen to to dwell among his people, place his name or set his name there. He's saying that in the end, there will be holiness there. There will be a remnant. There will be holiness. And he says, they will possess the possessions of the wicked. I will give them their possessions. They will take that. And so these verses provide a breakdown, verses 19 and 20, of how the people possess the land of the heathen. However, there are also some statements made in verse 18, which I believe are important for us to consider. And these statements further expound upon the first division of this prophecy, verses 1 through 14, as I've previously mentioned, in which the Lord pronounced absolute judgment upon Edom. Obadiah, verse 18, provides insight to the last statement Obadiah made in the previous verse, verse 17. Look back at verse 17 in the last part of the verse. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Then verse 18 provides the manner in which Israel and Judah together would not only be restored, but would also be given victory over their enemies. Verse 18, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, 
and the house of Joseph of flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. The first thing stated, which may at first be overlooked, is that God includes both Israel and Judah in reality in the inheritance of the wicked. And we're told throughout the Old Testament that God would unite his people, the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph. God's work of reconciliation is to remove the hostility that exists between God and man, and man with man as well. You'll find throughout the scripture, as a, as a matter of fact, in, in Paul's writings, there are passages in which Paul speaks of reconciliation. Remember what reconciliation means. To reconcile means that the enmity that existed, or the hostility that existed, is now removed. So it's been dealt with, and it's been, it's been addressed, and now it, it's removed. And so in, the, in Paul's epistles, you will find where Paul will reference uh, reconciliation, and he does so one part in relation to men with God, that God has reconciled us to himself, of course, through Jesus Christ. But then there's other passages, passages where Paul mentions reconciliation, and he's talking about God reconciling man with man. In fact, the Jew and the Gentile specifically. And how that there's no difference between them and now God has reconciled, broken down that middle wall of partition that existed, that which divided in their worship, even the proselyte, uh, even the Gentiles which were proselytized, who became uh, part of of Judaism, if you will. They began to believe, they believed God and they uh, they became part of of the Judaism in their worship. But yet there was a wall that divided them. They were not part of Israel in the sense of Jewish uh, they were considered Jews, if you will, because they were Gentiles. But yet now in Christ, all that's done away with. It's all abolished. And so God not only reconciles us with himself, man with himself, but God also reconciles man with man in that regard. That there is no, again, there is no preference of man. There's no, uh, Jews are not favored above Gentiles and Gentiles are not favored above Jews. All men are guilty, Paul says in Romans All men are guilty, both Jew and Gentile. And in Christ, all men are made part of the family of God, both Jew and Gentile, those who are redeemed. And so we have to recognize that. So reconciliation is God removing that away, that hostility. And we find that uh, God had chosen, of course, the people of the Old Testament to be his people. God created man and woman in unity. God a a people of the Old Testament to be his people, the, the people of Israel. Yet sin had had and has perverted the relationships that existed between man and wife and brother with brother. And we know this reconciliatory work is accomplished through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so within this prophecy we find uh, throughout Scripture as well, uh, which speaks, of course, to God reconciling the divided kingdom. Because remember, when he speaks about the house of Joseph, the house of, of Jacob, here he's talking, of course, remember it was Judah and Benjamin, of course, that were the tribes... Uh, the tribe of Judah consisted of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And then, of course, you have uh, the northern tribes, which would have consisted of the other ten tribes of, of Israel. And so that being said, uh, this reconciling of this divided kingdom that now existed, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom uh, included Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulun. And the two tribes, again, of southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. And here's what we find throughout Scripture concerning them, this reconciliation. And this is important in verse 18 because God is speaking about the house of Jacob, house of Judah. And then he starts talking about how these two uh, groups are going to then conquer or they're going to be given the possessions of these heathen 
people in heathen lands. And so we see here that he's, he's bringing a unity back to them when they have been divided. In Psalm seventy-seven fifteen, we read, Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Hosea 1, 11. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Ezekiel 37, 15 through 24. This is quite lengthy, but hear what's being stated. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and ride upon it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and ride upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt not, Will thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou ridest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then verse 24, this is very important in relation to what is being even spoken of in Obadiah. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Now, this is after a divided kingdom. You understand that? He's saying, I will unite them, and make them one. They'll have one king. They'll have one shepherd. Did you read that with me or, or hear that being read? One king and one shepherd. And then verse 24, and David, my servant, shall be king over them. David is already dead. This isn't talking about King David, who was the first king, literal king of Israel, God's king over Israel. This is speaking, this is, this is uh, messianic. This is speaking of Christ who will rule over in bringing unity. It is Christ who will be the king, who will be the shepherd. And now let me show you that even further in Obadiah's prophecy. We're getting ahead of ourselves now, but verse 21. And Savior shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And what's the last thing said in this entire prophecy? And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so here's what you find again, and this is so important. You will never see in Scripture God's judgment declared without His grace being provided and given as well. Where you see the wicked being judged. We saw this even in Revelation, if you recall. We looked in Revelation, the final judgment of the wicked. The day of the Lord has happened, occurred, all men are now standing before God, those, the heathen, the wicked stand before him, and the great white throne judgment, and those whose names were not found in the book of life, those who, of course, were not redeemed, and none of them were redeemed. They were all cast into the lake of fire, hell was cast in with it, absolute, utter destruction. But then what does it say also? It goes on to speak about we who are the redeemed. 
that we will be with the Lord. And, and you find throughout Scripture that there is judgment of God pronounced. We saw this especially, if you recall, the last couple of weeks when we looked at in the prophecy, I believe it's Amos, if I'm not mistaken, where the Lord says, you know, who shall stand before the Lord in judgment? And he talks about how he's utterly destroying. And then verse 7, that's all in 1 through 6. And then verse 7, what's he say? The Lord is good. He's merciful to those who trust him. So you find all this horrible judgment, and then you find God's mercy and grace just explained and declared. And so here's what you find. Edom is being destroyed. The heathen are being destroyed. But God shall bring deliverance to his people, and he's going to grant them their possessions of the heathen and the wicked. And then ultimately, in verse 21, the kingdom shall be Lord's. And so, again, while Edom might would attempt to raise up, and as Malachi teaches, where the people in Malachi chapter 1, it speaks of Esau and Edom, and it talks about how that they would, that, that, that God says, I, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. He said, I will lay his mountain, his heritage, waste for the dragons. He said, they will say, oh, let us build up. And he says, oh, and they'll build up and I'll destroy and tear down. And it says, these are the people whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And the word indignation there means the Lord has cursed them forever. So here you find absolute destruction. But then you find even in that prophecy, God is dealing with Israel, his people, and he is stating to them, calling them back to himself. While, while he is judging them, while he is rebuking them, while he is, he is laying out indictments against them, he is telling them to come to him, to return to him. And so again, anywhere you find God's judgment, you also find the grace of God by which that judgment is contrasted and the goodness of God, if you will, the favor of God upon those who do genuinely trust in him, his people. Within verse 18, the Lord provides three descriptions here. He says the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, the house of Esau. And notice what he says in verse 18 again. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. Now this passage again alludes to the fact that God would reconcile brother to brother, and more importantly, God would reconcile men to himself. The fact that Jacob is referred to as a fire and Joseph a flame is indicative of the unity between the two as God would restore them. Because of Jacob being a fire, and, and Esau, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Joseph a flame is that, that of a torch, if you will. So you have a continual burning fire and a torch that is being referenced here. And that, of course, is, there's unity in that. And the restoration is further demonstrated in the unity of purpose and blessing God would provide them. They would both, as fire and flame, consume the house of Esau. That's what's being stated, which is stubble. What is the house of Esau? Stubble. Here you have fire, here you have flame, and here you have stubble. They would both, as fire and flame, consume the house of Esau. The stubble refers to the straw, which is dried. Uh, it's grass that is dried, and it's used for brick making or fodder. It's food for cattle. And, and the stubble being dry, of course, it was extremely flammable and easily consumed by the fire. It was fuel for fire. And God would use Jacob and Joseph to consume the goods of the house of Esau, just as Esau had mocked the chastisement God used to correct his people. In like manner, Esau would be left desolate. Again, this is further explained in the remaining portion of the verse, verse 18. And they shall kindle in them. Do you see what's being said here? Jacob is fire, Joseph is flame, Esau is stubble, and they, Jacob and Joseph, these houses, shall kindle in them in what? 
in the stubble. So now they're going to kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. We must remember that the emphasis of this prophecy, again, is the absolute destruction of Edom in the first portion, first half or or more of the prophecy. And God would destroy the people of Edom. And the Lord would bless his people with the spoils of the heathen, as indicated in verses 19 through 20. And so in all of this, again, we we are once again reminded that God will faithfully correct his people, he will faithfully judge the wicked, and he will faithfully reconcile and restore all those who are called by his name. And that's what we're being told. Again, I I believe the the joy of the passage is us recognizing in verse 21 that after God says, I will restore, I will give to Jacob, Joseph, I will bring unity, and I will give uh, their possessions, the possessions of the heathen unto them. But as we read just a moment ago in Ezekiel, David, my servant, shall be king over them. Then you read verse 21, that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And the Lord's here, by the way, is referencing specifically to Messiah, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's talking about Jesus Christ, who is Lord, and that he would reign. And David, if you recall as well, you find in the New Testament that it's very clearly stated, of course, not only that our Lord Jesus Christ is of, of course, the lineage of David, the king of Israel, but that he is the true David, he is the true king of Israel, which David was a shadow of and representative of. Uh, he was God's chosen king over them, but yet, of course, David, as you know, sinned. We know that. He was a man, and he sinned, and there was, there was grievous sin of, of David that was present, but yet Christ is the true David. He's the true king, and that he will rule and reign. So again, in the midst of God's judgment of the wicked, I remember again in the New Testament where we're told, of course, and Peter speaks of this, how that uh, God knows how to reserve the wicked under the day of judgment. Remember that? God, God, God's going to judge the wicked. He's faithful to this. But he also is faithful to deliver those who are righteous, those who are redeemed. And God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So while judgment, look, we, we live, in, and I'm not saying this is, a, this is some revelation to you. Obviously, it's not. You, you, you would have to have your head stuck in the sand, in the dirt, to not understand this truth or recognize this. It's always been like this since sin entered into the world. This has always been the case. But we are aware that we live in a world that is ripe for judgment. You are aware of that, I hope. We live in a world that is ripe for judgment. And judgment will come. I'm reminded of, of Romans 2.5, that those despise the grace of God, the goodness of God that leadeth them to repentance, that, that is provided. And it says that, of course, they store unto the, up unto themselves the wrath of God to be revealed at the righteous day of judgment. So they constantly just store up God's wrath. And the wrath of God, it, it, the world is, is right for the judgment and, and the wrath of God to be revealed and poured out. Here's the good news in all of that. Despite the fact that we live in a world that is ripe for judgment and will be judged without question, the heathen will be judged. The fact of the matter is that the Lord is good and he is gracious and merciful to them that trust him. <laughs> and God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And what a comfort that is. We do not, we do not 
rejoice at the thought. Again, I remind you of those who perish. And the fact of the matter is that we must understand it is of God's grace, which is unmerited favor, that we are not left under the wrath of God. And so I say to you again in all of this, as we reflect upon what God's judgment upon Edom and his restoration of his people and his kingdom, which will continue with no end. Again, the kingdom of God and his Christ is the only kingdom that will last. All the kingdoms of men will fall, every one of them. But might I remind you as believers in Christ that we need to be aware that Jacob was no more deserving of God's grace than Esau. And Esau was no more deserving of God's wrath and hatred than Jacob. Think about that for a moment. Neither one of them were better than the other. And we must remember, let us rejoice, but let us also recognize the impending judgment and wrath of God upon a world that is in absolute spiritual darkness that will one day be utterly destroyed. But let us never forget that there is not one unbelieving sinner that is out in the world today that deserves judgment any more than we. The only reason that we are delivered out from under this is because of Christ. Because of the goodness of God, not because of our goodness. So let us be mindful of that as well. There is a kingdom to come that already is, but will be realized and revealed in its perfection. And all other kingdoms will be destroyed. So let's be mindful of that as we live each day. And as we continue to work through our studies of God's Word, remembering that it is only by the grace of God that we stand where we stand. It's only because of Christ that we stand before Him, having been cleansed, purified, and restored and reconciled unto Him in a relationship. Let's pray. Father.